Hello and welcome to Furloughed, defining moments worth talking about. As always, I'm your host, Leonard Cochran, and Steve Otterstrom is with us here today. And Steve, I'm excited to report, I think we have shaken COVID in our house. Oh, that's so, so good to hear. Very, very excited. Yes, uh, just, uh, I, I know my wife is experiencing a little bit of a fever feeling at nighttime, you know, kind of night sweats. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughter, for a little over 48 hours, seems to be running normal without any kind of temperature, probably still feeling drained and sluggish from the results of it. Uh, but I, I physically feel like I am back to, we'll, we'll say 99.9% uh, regular. I, I, I There's just a tiny tickle in my chest, occasionally clearing the throat, which is not abnormal for this time of year <laughs> anyhow. So I, I'm really, to feel normal feels like 110%. And uh, so well, I wanted to I'm share very, that update with you and with our listeners. I'm here. very happy to hear that. Happy to hear that you're you're doing better and, and really happy to hear that Paula's doing better as well. You know, yes. not... You know, it, when I when I told my wife about it, you know, she she really wasn't as concerned about you as she was about Paula. <laughs> like, is Paula okay? <laughs> oh, of course. I'm like, well, wait, but Leonard's a person too. <laughs> However, well, I, you know, I, 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 think I think it's not the first time you've encountered that people care more about your wife than you. <laughs> well, she she exudes just a little bit more love than I do. For those of you that have never had opportunity to meet her, uh, uh, I. I, I am who I am, and uh, I, I do love people, but I work a lot harder at it than she does. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think people recognize that. <laughs> if you don't know what we mean, all you need to do is go back in the archive of these podcasts. And uh, she was um, yes. a guest. Oh, I don't know. It's been several months. It was fairly early on, and she was talking about uh, what she has done to help women who battle addiction. And um yes. It, it, it would be worth looking back if, if you're wondering why yeah. we care about um, Leonard's wife and why she's a better person than him. That would <laughs> yeah, that are. would explain it all. So, wild guess that's probably about episode 17 or so in our first year of uh, doing this, which is, of course it's only last year, but still, if you're looking for it, it might be somewhere around there. Goodness, it's hard to believe we've had that many episodes. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's been it's been quite um, a journey. <laughs> absolutely and i know well, we've mentioned kind of... that before but it's just something that sometimes i think back and go wow that was episode 17 and we've done at least that many since <laughs> yeah 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 we've uh, i i've flipped to the uh little nerd moment here but yeah at, at, now that we're in year two it's year two episode one year two episode three etc so it's going to be even harder to actually keep a tally now uh but you know we're somewhere close to the 50 mark i'm sure so maybe we need to look at that and have a celebration at 50 and 75 and some of those mile markers. We'll, we'll invite everyone uh, to a um, Zoom <laughs> a call or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, hey, speaking of celebrating, it is a holiday weekend and it is Martin Luther King's birthday weekend or, or when we celebrate MLK Day. Uh, and so I, I know Steve, you and I spoke and we thought we'd go ahead and give some homage to Martin Luther King and share some experiences uh, of, as we kind of joked about before the recording started, a couple of white guys talking about black things today. And so, <laughs> but, uh, and, and by all means, I'll, I'll do the disclaimer a little bit here, Steve, and I know you'll do a better job again. Um, uh, but essentially we want to talk about some things that we're aware of from our perspectives and recognizing uh, by no means do we want to offend anybody. We're, we're just literally sharing things the way we see it and the way we experienced it. And if we do end up saying something a little bit stupid, <laughs> a little bit uh, fumbly or whatnot, uh, we, we ask in advance for a little bit of mercy and grace for us. And, and by all means, feel free to drop us a note. If you, if you are deeply offended by anything we say, uh, certainly want you to do that. But our, our intent is not to uh, jump in the middle. Uh, race has certainly been a heated thing here for this past mm-hmm. year. And we don't want to necessarily jump in the middle of all that heated debate, what's been going on there, but talk about it more from a historical perspective and our own experiences. So, Steve, yeah. do you want to add a, a little more disclaimer or say anything else before we <laughs> sort of delve into our our childhoods and experiences? Of, yeah, uh, certainly with race. echoing the same things. You know, I think one thing that, um, especially as the events of 
2020 played out with the, um, well, I mean, with George Floyd comes to mind, but there are many others um, yes. that uh, that really kind of brought to my attention that racism was a much more alive and well than I had chosen to see at the time. And, and I think as I, as I look more and more, and as I, as I peel back the onion, um, I discover there's, there's a lot more layers to it. And, and unfortunately I discover there, there are aspects of my own personality that need to be re-examined and, and not just in, in, from a racism perspective, but from an ism perspective, from all the different isms <laughs> that can be in there. But, uh, you know, acknowledging that I've never had to worry about, you know, being pulled over by a cop. I haven't been followed in a grocery store, um, you know, because someone thinks I might steal something. I haven't, I haven't dealt with a lot of those things. And so it's, it's easy for me to have a blind spot. And, and, and at some point, you know, hopefully we, we bring someone on, Maybe later on, we, we didn't really have time to try and find a, a guest speaker for today, um, but who can maybe share a little more from that perspective. Uh, so so for our blind spots, um, I think you said it very well, Leonard. Um, we ask a little bit of mercy, and we also welcome any feedback you want to give us, acknowledging that it's not your job to educate us on our ignorance. Um, we'll, we'll continue to do our best to try and do that um, ourselves, but we do welcome any, any feedback especially where we may have blind spots uh, to pains, um, to difficulties, to insensitivity um, as well. So with that, I think, I, think, I think that's a long enough disclaimer. We could even put that at the, at the back of a contract. Um, <laughs> well, I, I always we, worry when the disclaimer is too long. Like when someone says, please don't take offense, I know, okay, you're about to say something offensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's so true. That's so true. And that's not our intent by any stretch yes. of imagination. So. But uh, yeah, so I, what we thought is uh, just kind of, um, you know, what does MLK mean to a couple white guys? And um, so let, let us indulge us for just a moment. And we'll share a little bit of our past. And uh, so I, I know, Steve, uh, I currently live in Memphis. And of course, most folks recognize this is where Martin Luther King was shot. So how about we kind of talk about your past first, because my past eventually leads to Memphis, which leads us back to MLK. And I think that's a great place for us to land. So um, you 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 were born and raised in Utah, correct? Yes. Salt Lake yes. Yeah. I was born and raised in Utah. Um I, I, I grew up in a neighborhood that really couldn't be much whiter than it was, but it wasn't even um, the neighborhood and its whiteness, because there was some diversity in the neighborhood where we really had almost no um, racial diversity was, was in the community that was closest to us, and that was in our church. Um, you know, we went to church every Sunday and during the week had different activities and who we associated with and who we were closest to we're almost always people from church. You know, you were cordial with everyone else, but if you had a neighbor that didn't go to church, you might not know much about who they are or what they did because goodness, they weren't part of the, the community that you were, you were closest to. And, you know, and I, I think from the very beginning, one of the things that um, I didn't realize until much later in life, but the church that, I, that my family went to was a Mormon church and um, I know for some of you listening to this, especially if you're friends and family of mine, you might know quite a lot about it, or you might be further off and know very little about it. And I'm not trying to give much of a background on what Mormonism teaches, but one of the core tenets is this idea that people who have been baptized and people who have gone through uh, special um, additional rites in their temples um, have the ability to maintain a family unit uh, for the rest of eternity, that the father, and mother and children and grandparents, cousins, that in the afterlife, they'll all be united and will be forever a family unit. There was an exception to that. And this exception existed until I was four months old. And that exception was black families. Hmm. The, the church belief at that time was that black families weren't eligible for those additional rights. They could be baptized, but they could not have these additional rights that would allow them to be a forever family unit. 
So there was for the context of history, Steve. Sorry to interrupt. Yes. But what, what what year would that be? It was uh, 1978. So yeah, they don't know how old I am, so I guess yeah. saying I was a four month old baby when that changed <laughs> doesn't really help. But now everyone can calculate my age. So thanks yes. for getting that out there, Leonard. But oh, that's, um, that's that's not as important as recognizing what what date in history it is, because that is recent history. I mean, I recognize there's some folks out here that are quite young and weren't around at that time. But in the scheme of things, that's really not that long that, ago. That's really not that long ago. And and that was the context I grew up in. Um, and it was also one of those things that was um, a, a, a great embarrassment, um, I think, for for many people because it, they, they didn't want to be seen as racist. They felt like in their own hearts they weren't racist, but they had supported and and sustained this, this concept. Um, and, and even as it's talked about today, rarely is this idea that the families themselves were never seen as equal. It's always talked in the context of what they call priesthood, that um, at that point, uh, another aspect of this was that um, men in the Mormon faith are ordained to the priesthood, all of them. Um, I guess there might be a few that are baptized and not ordained, but nearly every single one will be ordained to the priesthood, and that gives them some ability to preside um, over not only um, things at church, but that priesthood also gives them the ability to preside more effectively as is the belief um, over their own homes. That if a child is sick, they don't need to go and find um, you know, their congregation leader and ask them to come and, and give a blessing of healing. The um, father of that home is the one who does that. In fact, even as your children grow up, uh, you don't generally it can be done outside the home, but don't they don't generally have someone else baptize their children. The father has the ability to perform many of what they consider the saving rites. Now, the distinction would be in a black home, um, a father would not have those rights uh, because it was not believed that a black person was allowed to hold that priesthood. Now, now we can go back into why that belief was there, and there's a lot of contention about it. Historically, there's no contention. <laughs> Historically, if, if you go back, you can see what um, the general authorities and the people who um, were <laughs> who ran the church, their prophet, um, we, we can go back and we can read what they said, and, and it's not really much of a bone of contention. Uh, but for many Mormons today, it's it's difficult because um, they 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 still have never acknowledged that what was done was incorrect, and to do that would mean that they would have to acknowledge that someone they they had seen as as a prophet of God had had actually made a mistake, and that yeah, begs the yeah. question: Well, the the person that leads the church today, who was also a prophet of God and who presided over. Uh, that time period, or had a not he wasn't the person in charge, but had a a level, a high level of of authority in that time period, um, also made a mistake. And well, so let it, me ask you, this, yeah, Steve, yeah, that's 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 the church historical perspective. So now let's talk a little more personal, though. How how did then? Uh, obviously, that would cause some taint or bias on your part, I would assume, just because of being a part of that faith or belief system at the time. Yeah. Um, well, uh, were you aware of any kind of a bias on your part, or did you see anything play out? I mean, there are some. Mm -hmm. I, I know there's yeah. not a lot of black people out in Utah, but there are some. Well, uh, did you have any experiences or anything where you the, maybe the saw first thing I saw was what I didn't see. Of course, mm -hmm. with this being the um, <laughs> the the core part of the core doctrines of the church. Believe it or not, um, it wasn't really effective um, uh, it, it, within black communities. So um, yes. it may, I don't think anyone would find it surprising that um, there were literally almost no black members of the church. And, and in fact, that's even continued in, in, in through today. Now, there's a, certainly a lot larger um, population. And it's interesting because like in all history, um, you, if you go back far enough, you find that um, there were some very influential, very early um, black members of the Mormon faith um, who who were very helpful in getting getting the church started. But then uh, Brigham Young turned on them, and um, he was the second prophet of the church, and uh, removed their ability to really be to thrive. And so most of those early members 
disappeared and some of them formed um, a, a, a historical uh, black church that is still here in Salt Lake on, on what is now Martin Luther King Boulevard. Um, so mm. th- there, there, there was a history there, but those that had been from the early days have long ago left. Missionary work that is a big staple of, of the Mormon belief was not effective within black communities. And I don't think many people were even trying. So I do remember as a child, there, was, um, there were two black children that came to church um, and they weren't there the entire time growing up. This was for a short period of time. Um, the first one was the age of my older brother and um, Boy Scouts was a big deal. Uh, in, 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 it recently has not become a big deal in the Mormon faith, but it was a big deal back then. In fact, it was part of your, um, considered your, your growth within what, what they call the priesthood. As you, as you become a young man, as you begin to wield your godly powers, <laughs> you were supposed to also learn how to build a campfire, how to shoot guns, how to you know <laughs> walk long distances, all the things that you would learn in Boy Scouts. And so um, the uh, person who led Boy Scouts actually had a calling, we called it, from the church. They were, they were actually hands laid upon their head and set apart as a Boy Scout leader. And um, what, I, what I remember about this, and this was just the year prior to me moving into Boy Scouts, um, this young man went on a camping trip. Um, two older boys uh, decided it would be fun um, to shoot at him with a BB gun. They thought that was uh, an enjoyable pastime. Uh, of course, it's kind of like some of these other racial injustices. Some white people did get upset about that. They said, you can't go around shooting the only black kid we have here. That's racist. <laughs> you can't do yeah. that. And there was amongst the parents some, you know, th- th- these these boys need a talking to. And they got a talking to, but they really needed to be removed from scouts because there was no way this young man was ever going to feel safe coming back. And he didn't feel safe coming back. And he never did come back. To scouts. Now, I want to be really clear if anybody knows me or knows my past, uh, the scoutmaster I had later on in life is not the one we're talking about. Um, <laughs> if anybody knows him, uh, he was a best friend. Uh, he was my, my best friend's father and was would have protected any child in his custody. We're not talking about him. We're talking about one much, much earlier on. I just want to make sure I'm not <laughs> defaming anyone. But um, a year later, I was on a 50-mile hike with this same scoutmaster, and we were sitting around um, the campfire. And that's where I first remember hearing the N-word as he talked about the mother of this child who had been shot with a BB gun by the two older kids that were still on that um, camping trip with us and um, who were really the biggest bullies um, of, of the scout group. You know, so it was, it's interesting. I, I, I definitely, and I was not as aware of racism because I was not aware of of this community that was existing outside of this bubble uh, that I was in. I heard a lot about um, Martin Luther King from the perspective of we support him, even though within that church context, you know, someone who later became the prophet had said that they believed that Martin Luther King was all part of a communist conspiracy. <laughs> and and yeah. I and I wholeheartedly believed in my church. And so I did grow up with some racist views. I, and it's interesting that argument's still made today from some some audiences, I think, as well. You know, yeah. Because of his stance on the, the Vietnam War in particular, I think, is where he drew a lot of that fire from. Yeah. So. And so so um, there's certainly been some places in my life that I've, I've, I've stopped and go, oh, my goodness. I'm afraid I have a, a perspective that I've held since early childhood. <laughs> and... Um, and it really wasn't until I was in high school that I, I even encountered larger groups of, of black people. And, and our high school, while not segregated technically, was in every other way literally segregated. Black kids were over here. White kids were over there. We did not really mingle much, much amongst each other. And I think a big part of that was because we, were, we had been raised within this faith that was completely, you know, separated as well. Hmm. Yeah. 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 And I, I can certainly see in the context 
uh, having visited Utah. <laughs> and, and in the context of that, I mean, it is very much a Mormon state, let's face mm-hmm. it. And Salt Lake is very much a Mormon city. And so that, that does come into play in every area of that community. So you're either, you're either with that organization or, or outside of it. And, and that's almost how you have to define yourself there. And so when it's very recently think, where there's ever it's really only recent that there's been much of an, a, an attempt to try and break that down. Um, the current president of the church or the, the prophet, um, uh, you know, for Mormons, as they, as they refer to him, um, has opened an alliance with the NAACP. And there is some some conversation going. I, I really don't feel we're going to see any major changes until there's any acknowledgement of mistakes made in the past. Yeah. Um, and and I do want to clearly state that I know plenty of Mormons, <laughs> and most of them don't have a racist bone in their body. I'm not trying to. I, I'm explaining where my racism came from, where I learned it, and how I learned it <laughs> um, yeah. was within that context. But many people with different experiences, especially those who grew up outside of Utah, may have had a very different experience. So I'm not trying to move this to say now we're going to put all Mormons in this box. Uh, because yeah. that would be unfair as well. Well, it, it, yeah, and, and thank you for clarifying that, Steve, for uh, everybody, because there's no question, in the end, is, this is just a single frame of view in which you grew up with. And the church itself may have had that stance, but to your point, there are literally thousands of, of Mormons that would, would not have an issue with anyone of color. and uh, So it's not like it's, although it may be a part of that, religious institutions past history it doesn't mean it's embedded into every individual within that community Mm -hmm. Uh, just and and two of course we said it at the start of the show you and i are white we grew up white and so we we kind of have you know the term now is white privilege but we kind of have just that whiteness as our background and we don't know what we don't know um i'm real reminded uh and I'll, I'll i'll jump into my past here in just a moment but before i do just real quick um i i was involved in doing some outreach in memphis in one of the projects here and uh as we were driving through the project it was a, a black minister that was helping our church get involved in the community and uh i i asked the guy i said how is it these people and, and I didn't mean these people as in a racial thing, but the people we were looking out the window at as we drove through the project, how is it they can grow up in this project and not know what they're missing out on? Because the, the project had no grass. You know, they basically it was uh, apartment type buildings, uh, two story apartment type buildings, maybe four apartments in a row. So almost kind of condo-esque, but certainly not as nice as a condo. But nonetheless, the, the playground equipment was ragged, you know, no nuts in the basketball hoops and all this kind of stuff. And I said, how can they grow up like this and, and miss out on all that other stuff? And the eye-opening response I got from this black minister was the fact that this is what they've grown up with. This is all they know. They don't know anything different. And maybe that's a nice way of refining, <laughs> refining what the definition of white privilege is. You know, we grew up with what we, we grew up with and really didn't know much different. Yeah. Um, so kind of jump to my, my past then just for some context. So uh, I grew up roughly an hour north of Detroit. And so I'm a child that grew up during the 70s. And so a few things come into play. Number one, we moved into a new community about 1970. Uh, in first grade, uh, I moved into a new city uh, from a neighboring town. And when we moved into the new town, interestingly enough, a uh, little sidebar, uh, we bought a what's called a prefab home. Most people today would recognize it as being a double wide trailer, but it was a prefab home. Don't know the difference between the two, but it was what we called a prefab home. So the city whatever reason allowed three of those to move zoning allowed three of them to move into the into the city it's a small city and we purchased one of those three that our neighbor had one the second one and the third one was down the road about a half a mile the reason i point that out is we were the we were the poor people in the community because of living in that kind of a housing 
uh, situation. Now we were buying it. It wasn't like it was section eight or anything like that, but it was just cheap, affordable housing. That being said, uh, the community I grew up in was almost 100% white. And when I say almost, we had three elementary schools in the city plus a Catholic school. So I guess four, but three public schools, a Catholic school that ran till fifth grade junior high. We had one single junior high for the entire city. And we had one single high school for the entire city. When I graduated 1982, it was one of the largest graduating classes they'd had. And there were roughly 325 of us that graduated at the time of my graduation in the entire school system. I'll let you do the math as to how many people that might be. But in the entire (laughs) school system, there was one African-American in my grade and there was one in a grade younger than me. So I I knew both of them uh, and and ran track with both of them when they ran track. Uh, One of them moved on to football and uh, didn't didn't run track, but uh, just a couple years like in junior high. Uh, but nonetheless, so I knew both of the black guys that were in the entire school system. Now, it was rumored my senior year that there were two other kids in elementary school. And the joke or rumor was they were crossing the street to go to the school in our city. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't know if that was actual true or if it was literally supposed to be a joke or rumor. But that's that's the way we talked about it because we were white as white could be, needless mm-hmm. to say. But the interesting thing, because of it being so white, I was fascinated with people of color. Um, back, in, and again, dating myself, I've already given you what, what age I was when just by following my school line there. Uh, but stereo music was not the most common thing in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And so I would either listen to elevator music or I would find a black station that had stereo because those elevator music, as we call it, like Muzak used to be in that type oh, of thing. Oh, yes, yes. Was stereo. That was stereo music. And uh, the, the Motown music and any black music that I would find would be stereo music. And for whatever reason, you know, AM was pretty much a white thing and FM radio was still growing and becoming new and all that. So I listened to a lot of, uh, you know, the Motown music and different stuff like that. So I was, I guess, just fascinated with why was our culture so distinct like that? Why was it, why did I live in a white city? Why weren't there black people there? And so on. And I imagine it really was an economic situation. I I don't, you know, I never in my eyes saw anything that I perceived to be racist, Mm -hmm. uh, even with the black guys. Um, Admittedly, there were some jokes that were racial. But, you know, in the context of the 70s, mid-70s and later 70s, you know, we had jokes about Hispanics. We had jokes about, uh, you know, Irish people. We had jokes about, you know, all, all the slangs that we've heard in the past, you know, Dago Wop and whatever yeah, yeah. things that people used, you know, uh, Polak jokes, as we called them and so on. So interesting. Like, there weren't really wasn't... any white jokes back then. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think right there, that's, I mean, I, there certainly are some now, yeah. but, yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I think that's interesting going back into that time period. I remember that in high school too. And it, it, it didn't dawn on me at the time that, you know, while we expected people to find humor in, in some of these jokes, I don't yeah. recall there being any white jokes out there. Yeah. And, and, and too, I know for myself, those were minority groups that I really didn't have exposure to either. Mm-hmm. So it was making a joke of something in which I had no experience to speak to. Right. And yeah. I guess that that's a great way to define, um, maybe not so much define racism, but, but when bias you have a lack of understanding. Yeah. yeah. It's a, certainly a way of, of, of bias and, and, uh, that, but nonetheless, so I, uh, in addition to that experience though, it was in 1974, which would have put me in the third and fourth grade somewhere in there. I vividly, remember watching television and the riots that happened in Detroit because Mm. of forced busing. And for those that might not recall, not to insult anybody, but you know, that was when you took white kids from a white school district and forced them into a black school district. And you took black kids from a black school district and forced them into a white district. And it was forced busing. 
And uh, so I can, I just remember uh, Detroit was a rough neighborhood back then. <laughs> and uh, I, watching the news and just seeing buildings on fire and seeing the riots and, and people, you know, it was very much like watching the civil rights movement in the 60s and what I've seen in the footage of that. And so it, it, it sort of, in my mind, was kind of seared in seeing that. Um, so for whatever it's worth, I, I felt a fascination with black people. I loved, you know, George Washington Carver was one of my favorite people. Um, you know, and I know it sounds very white to say stupid things like that, but I, I really, you know, he was one of my heroes, you know, and mm -hmm. what he accomplished, um, not only because of what he accomplished because of his color, but what he accomplished in general. Yeah. Uh, I was fascinated with successful people, Henry Ford, and, um, uh, Benjamin Franklin and different people uh, I, I was fascinated with as a youngster. But nonetheless, as an adult, I moved to Memphis eventually. Uh, so somewhere around 1985, 86 or so, I moved to Memphis. And by then I was somewhere, you know, say about 21, 22 years of age. And of course, Memphis is where Martin Luther King was shot. And my initial thought of Memphis when I came uh, I did live two hours away from Memphis for a while, a little country town in Tennessee. Uh, but when I came to Memphis, my initial thought was it was an overgrown small town that never progressed <laughs> since 1968. It very much felt like that. Um, Memphis has come a long ways since 1985, 1986. Uh, but at that point in time, it still, to me, there was still racial tension hanging in the air. And uh, I, I used to summarize it frequently that Memphis was a city of racism, religion, poverty, all circled in oppression. Wow. And I, I think we've moved from that as a city. I still, you know, I'm, I'm 10, 15 miles outside the city now uh, across the Mississippi line, oddly enough. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I think the city has progressed as, as uh, other industries have come into the city and as other people from other cities have moved to the city and added some more white collar jobs and grown, I, I think it's changed. But I've been, during my time here, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of seeing the first black mayor sworn in. And I can remember overnight, the atmosphere changed in the city. I, I didn't live in the city, but we did a lot of things in the city. And so when uh, Mayor Willie Harrington was sworn in, it was 1991 that he was sworn in in the pyramid downtown Memphis. Mm -hmm. We went to the swearing in, my wife and I did. And of course, we were by far a minority. So a little quick statistic about Memphis and the surrounding area before I go too far. Uh, Memphis, at that point in time, the population of the city was somewhere around 55% black. And so obviously that means about 45% white or 40 plus 48% or 40, let me do the math. Anyhow, there's about 1% Asian in, in the city. So basically it's predominantly a black city. The county, Shelby County, where the city of Memphis sits, is flipped reverse of that. It's, it's about 55% uh, white and the remainder of the county is is black and now those numbers have changed over the years i think where the county is probably about 60 65 percent white now uh, i think the city is still maintaining somewhere around 55 percent black i'm not totally sure today where it stands that being said it was my first opportunity when i especially when i first visited memphis that i became aware of the fact that i was a minority in the city wow Memphis is home of the Church of God in Christ, which is one of the larger black denominations, if not the largest in the United States. Um, and so I visited Memphis one time looking for employment to move from where I was two hours away. And I was downtown Memphis. There was a lot of activity, the convention centers downtown. And so I parked the car just to kind of see what was going on. Why was there so much com commotion? Well, I didn't know what Church of God in Christ was. So there's all these Kojic, Kojic, C-O-G-I-C, Kojic signs hanging up. Didn't have a clue what that was. And I was walking around and all of these people walking around. And it, Memphis has a 
mall area. It's a paved road that is pedestrian road only. Mm-hmm. And so I'm walking around and suddenly I don't know how long it took, but I had been out there for a while and I realized I don't see any white people. And of course, recognizing it's a conference, I'm assuming it's something to do with the conference. And I looked, and at that point in time, the only white person I could see was a guy hanging from about the sixth floor of a building cleaning windows. And it was me and him were the only white people within my sight. (laughs) And it's an unusual sensation to suddenly recognize that you're the only person of Mm -hmm. your color around. And it was almost a sinking feeling just to recognize maybe something could happen because I'm the only person of this color. I don't know. Uh, And I had another instance of that at another time in Memphis. And for those of you that may know the city, you you might even appreciate this story. Um, I worked at a restaurant that was on, uh, it's called Airways Boulevard. The restaurant's no longer there. Like I say, the city's changed immensely. But when I got off of work, say somewhere around 10 o'clock at night, I was a waiter waiting tables. Mm-hmm. When I got off of work, I stopped at Kroger's to pick up some groceries. Well, the Kroger is at Airways and Lamar. Now, if you're from Memphis, you know immediately what I'm talking about because that's a pretty active area in our community called Orange Mound. And it's not necessarily a community you want to be in, whether you are, <laughs> regardless of what color you are, but it is uh, an African-American community. It is a poverty-stricken area. I stopped at the grocery store to make a purchase on the way home from work. And uh, there was a girl kicking and screaming on the floor because she had put a ham up her pant leg or did something, and they were retaining her until the police could arrive. And uh-huh. So, of course, that gets your heart kind of beating. And uh, as I'm walking around the store at 10, 10.30, you know, approaching 11 at night, I kind of realize... I'm the only white guy here. I'm out of place here. Yeah. And, uh, so you, you kind of make your purchase and run. Uh, but so it's been an interesting experience. But again, though, just to kind of add to that, I've seen some of the, some of the other sides of Memphis as well because of being involved in doing inner city ministry. Yeah. Um, uh, so we, we had opportunity. Uh, a gentleman was actually from Knoxville that came and spoke at our church, black gentleman, uh, really very much actually reminds me of Martin Luther King, a charismatic individual, strong character, uh, shorter black man, solid frame, wide shoulders and muscular, um, great guy. And uh, he talked about the need to reach out to the inner city. And so we, as a small little white congregation, decided that's what we were going to do with his guidance and with his help. And the first night that we were going to go out to the community to see what we could do, we were going to scope it out. And, um, we were particularly interested in going to the projects because that's where the, the worst of the worst tend to be, uh, poverty, the crime, and so on. And uh, the night that we went out was the night of the Rodney King verdict. Oh, wow. And the riots in L.A., so needless to say, we, we did not, as white people, go out <laughs> and do anything. Uh, but that gives you a time frame of where we were. But later on, we did land in a community that, that is it's still there. Uh, it's much different today, but it was called Claiborne Homes. And in it, there's a, there's a church in the middle of the project. And uh, Claiborne Homes is next door to another community that's called Foot Homes. And the two of them together are the largest single footprint. Uh, the two of them combined are larger than any other footprint of a project in the United mm-hmm. States. At least I was told at one point in time. Uh, but we did homework classes there for the kids in foot, uh, Claiborne Homes after they got out of school. And we did that for uh, a couple, few years anyhow, a couple, two, probably two, maybe three years. And uh, so again, back to my wife, Steve, you can appreciate it. I couldn't always be there because of my job. And so you can just envision, here's my wife, five foot one, uh, surrounded by somewhere in the neighborhood, anywhere from 30 to as many as 70 black kids in the, in the community building, trying to help them do their homework, bringing 
uh, canned drinks and crackers and a little bag of snack for them to have after school. And sometimes she'd be there alone. Yeah. Sometimes she'd be there with my, at that time, my daughter would have been about two to three years old. My son would have been in a carrier uh, and she'd be down there. It is. So we've, yeah. we've seen some stuff along the way. Well, I think it's interesting because I, I think what, you, what, what, I'm, what I'm hearing and, and seeing in your story is, and it's something I've heard an awful lot, you know, is, uh, is especially, of course, you know, you and I are, are two white guys trying to, <laughs> trying to understand something that, you know, we, we probably should understand better than we do. And, and I think you've definitely done better than I have in, in, in getting in and knowing um, a more diverse community. But one of the first things, and I think if anybody listening to this has had similar stories to us, one of the first things that sometimes happens when you try and expand your cultural comfort zone is discomfort. That um, I, I can't count how many times I've heard people give a similar explanation and they've about you know a place they've been and they looked around and they discovered they were the only white person and they felt scared. But I think it's important to recognize the difference between feeling scared and actually being in danger. You know yes. that. Um, your your brain, and we've talked about this from a neurological perspective, it looks for something that um, is different from what you're accustomed to. And when it finds something that's different from what you're accustomed to, it has a tendency to throw out a warning sign to say something is different. <laughs> you, yes. you, you need to be on guard, but it has no bearing in what necessarily the reality is of that situation. Um and, and I'm sure it, it, it can go, and it should go the other way. I think it wasn't all that many years ago, a young man, um, his car broke down in a white neighborhood, and he he did, I think, a fairly reasonable thing. He knocked on the door to see if someone could, could help him. And a man came to the door and shot him because they were sure that a black man in their white neighborhood was there for a home invasion. And so it's interesting because really where, where the fear should be oftentimes is in these um, or, or even more recently in the news, when um, there were uh, uh, BLM protesters that were marching past, none of them had set foot on the grounds of this uh, white couple's gated community home, and they were standing out there with assault rifles and pistols. The neighbors next door didn't have assault rifles and pistols. <laughs> they could have seen, looking both ways, that nobody else um, felt like their their property was going to be taken over, but yet they were pointing guns and they, you know, the, at one point the, the woman had her finger on the trigger and I mean, she could have sneezed at the wrong time and someone could have been killed. Um, but it's interesting how fear really does play into it. And the only way you get rid of that fear is, is by doing what you've just talked about. And that's getting in and knowing the community, spending some time with, with, with people. I know that, as a teenager, we went on vacation one time. You brought up the God in, uh, Church of God in Christ Church, and I don't know if this is exactly the same church, but as a teenager, we went on vacation, and we were doing a road trip. We're going through the Midwest. I don't even remember what state we were in, um, but you know, church was always important to us growing up, and so on Sunday, even when we were out of town, rather than taking a vacation from church, we would, we would find a congregation in the area, and in this circumstance, um, our, our, the Mormon congregation in the area, we looked it up in the phone book. It said the times that the church was going to take place. We put on our Sunday clothes that we brought with us when we were, when we were traveling because we didn't miss church. Um, and when we arrived, we discovered that uh, the times had changed the week before, and we were getting there at exactly the moment church was ending. Well, my dad looks across the street, and he sees this Faith Temple Church of God in Christ. And he says, it sounds like they believe in God. Let's see if we can join them. And so we walked across the street and it was so different. Everything was yeah. different uh, from how I had seen worship. You know, if you've, if you've ever attended a Mormon congregation, we sit in silence. And even when there's that one amen at the very end of, of, a, of a talk, it, it doesn't even get pronounced very well. You hear more of a... Uh, <laughs> go through the entire congregation music is subdued um you might once in a while uh find a guitar um in a church but it will be an acoustic one and it will be playing it classically you're not going to see a drummer there's not going to be an electric guitar in there those things apparently yeah. 
Um, no organ either then, obviously. Well, <laughs> well yeah, there is an yeah, organ. There is an organ. Tabernacle, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> a different kind of organ playing, though. Yes, but it, yeah, <laughs> it's... A, it's A Hammond B-52 or whatever those things exactly. are called. Exactly. Or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's going to play fully, I don't know if you if this is the right word, but chordal type music where it's... You know, type of... That's kind of like that hymn. There are maybe a few more upbeat hymns but it's it's very subdued and all of a sudden we were in there and there there may have been a a a couple other white people in there or people who were light enough skin that we thought they were they could pass um as white but for the most part it was it was our family we had no idea what we were supposed to do we were supposed to stand or sit people were dancing around and i i was like this is church (laughs) um and 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 honestly it scared me it scared me because I'd never been around that type of thing before. But I do remember this one point where they, and I, I don't, I don't, the, the, the music came, became more subdued and um, people started grabbing each other's hands in circles and things. And, um, and, and I remember a, a woman came over and she took my hand and she had um, another person from the congregation's hand and then I had my brother beside me, so I was holding his hand, and he and the, you know this other person. So there's four people holding hands in a circle, and it was like this moment of pure love, mm. you know. And and I remember her saying something along the lines of, "We bless you, we welcome you, we love you," and I I can't say anything that was quite as powerful at really kind of tearing down racial stereotypes um, yeah. than, than um, being there in that moment. I mean, we didn't understand the norms of, of that congregation, but we were accepted and we were loved. <laughs> I think we confused yeah. the minister to no end. He didn't know what to expect of us. I remember in the, um, in, in the final prayer, he, he, he was, and, and the prayers were so different because <laughs> yeah. Mormons don't say amen mid prayer because that tells God you're done and he stops listening, you know. <laughs> so so we wait till the very end, <laughs> um, and then there are all the amens and things coming through, and and we don't pray that loud. Um, and he was and he was he was, I have no doubt his voice was getting to God because there was there was enough volume in it. And I remember him saying, and it's interesting because there's a lot of things I don't remember about this. But, you know, I remember him saying, you know, God, we bless these strangers. We don't know why you brought them to us. And I was thinking, I don't know either why we're here. You knew we were the stranger, right? Yeah, we knew we were the strangers. There was no doubt about it because we, we had no idea what to do. Everyone was dancing around and we were just standing there staring because um, yeah. none of us had been in that, in that kind of situation before um and and but but it was again another point of really pure love in fact there are three points of pure love in there one i mentioned in the middle one at the end and then there was actually one at the beginning when when was we were walking up you know um my dad shook the hand of, of the lady that was uh, welcoming he says our our congregation isn't meeting today um do you mind if we join you and she said oh we would love to have you join us you yeah. know um uh what I want to figure out, because this was was them, you know, and, and talking about Martin Luther King, he talked about the white disease. Mm. You know, racism hurts us badly. <laughs> you know, and and it it creates nothing but pain on all sides of the equation. Yeah. And and I think even Malcolm X said something along the lines of he's tired of spending his life trying to cure the white man's disease, <laughs> you know, that it's it's time we took we took part ourselves. But, you know, I think the question that comes to me is how can I give those points of pure love? How can I broaden my community? How can I bring people in rather than expecting people to heal me? How do I reach out better? How do I um how do we how do we take racism on and and not just racism because i i think i i believe um martin luther king had this down when he talked about the three evils that are out there in the world today are three biggest evils and those were racism poverty and war or sometimes referred to as militarism 
And those are the three things, you know, and, and militarism doesn't just mean, you know, two militaries coming together. I think it's it's um, a desire to turn to violence. I think what happened at the Capitol was a great example of that. That was pure militarism. Nothing but but bad things came out of that, you know, um, that militarism. Uh, and, and militarism can happen on, on all sides. I mean, rioting, um, <laughs> burning police stations, that's militarism. No good comes out of that. Um, even though we can sometimes understand the anger that leads into militarism, militarism on its own is a force that we can't control. Once it started, it's it's a fire that burns out of control. So those those three items, racism, poverty, and and militarism, you know, how how can I how can I do things like like this Faith Temple Church of God in Christ <laughs> did mm-hmm. that in and with very very small and welcoming gestures made a lifelong lasting impact. How do we do that? You know, how do you and I do that? You know, it's kind of my, my question. Yeah. Well, I know, and, and, and I know you're not necessarily looking for a direct answer, but I, I and just in hearing your account of that, um, there's no question, whatever the answer is, it has to be deliberate. So mm-hmm. in other words, it, it's, you had a happy accident where you went there and were accepted. And, and I'm not saying it's an accident. You were accepted. It was an accident yeah. <laughs> that you went there. Yeah. It very easily. If, if, if they hadn't, if the phone book had been updated, I wouldn't remember any, I wouldn't even remember that Sunday happened. <laughs> it would never been there. Yeah. But, but, but so in that case, it was an accident, but in the end, there has to be a deliberateness with it. Right. You know, um, the experiences that I've had happened, you know, nobody made me go see the first black mayor at the city of Memphis be sworn in. I went, went voluntarily. I allowed myself to be put in an uncomfortable position knowing that, yeah, I don't know how many people that uh, stadium seated, but needless to say, there weren't a lot of white people there. There was the former mayor and uh, uh, I'm sure somewhere there was a couple hundred, I don't know, but out of, how many 15,000 seats or whatever it was, we were without question minority. So there has to be a deliberateness with it is all I, uh, that's, Mm -hmm. that's the first step and only step that I'm aware. Um, And and of course, I guess having some uh, good motive in it as well. Right. So it's not a matter of I'm doing this for me and what I'm going to gain out of it, but it really is how can I serve or be of service to this situation that I'm approaching, um, whether, you know, again, to your point, militism, militarism, as you said, it, I, I'm, I'm mispronouncing, I guess, but nonetheless, <laughs> I think you got what, it. militarism. What, yes. <laughs> yeah. What, what can I do or what should my part be, you know, whether it's poverty, you know, or, or racism, what, what is my part in that? And what can I do? And I think it's, it's being conscious enough or alert enough to ask the question. And, and that's, at least that's a step in that direction. I, at least I hope uh, people of color would agree with me in that or any, any other group of folks would agree with me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, it's, it's interesting as, as you're, as you're saying this, and this is probably going to sound really cheesy, but I, I hope, I hope people listening understand how much this, this actually does come from the heart. You know, one of the things that happened uh, this last week is um, Joanne Rogers passed away. That's, Fred Rogers or Mr. Rogers' uh, yeah. wife, and she was well into her 90s. But it, it caused me to stop and reflect about a person who lived a peaceable life, a life of um, inclusion, a life of conviction, and, um, and really a life that when I, I sum his entire life up, it comes down to one phrase, won't you be my neighbor? You know, and and Fred Rogers, like like Martin Luther King, you know, both of them were were, you know, men of extreme faith. You know, it was it was um, the the way they lived their lives, what they did day in and day out was in every way informed by this idea of something better, of living a better type of life. You know, and I. I, I can't help but think, you know, that when Fred Rogers says, won't you be my neighbor, that maybe he was thinking back on on a biblical story, you know, um, and mm-hmm. Leonard, I'm the atheist. You're the <laughs> you're the one that knows the, the Bible much better than I do, but I'll do my best and you can correct. Um, but 
really kind of this story where Jesus asked, who was this man's neighbor? Yes. And it wasn't, didn't have anything to do with proximity. It didn't have anything to do with um, what clan or family they came from. But the neighbor is the person who reaches out and cares for the person in need. And so, you know, when I, I can't help but have that imagery, you know, when we talk about, won't you be my neighbor? <laughs> and again, I'm not trying to make this this sound like um, too, too cheesy, but it, to me, it really, I, I see this as incredibly impactful. I think it's something we should be asking ourselves, who is my neighbor? Yeah. And, and I don't profess the Christian faith. But I think this is, a, is an absolute truth, regardless of what faith or non-faith <laughs> that you have, that we should be asking ourselves, who is our neighbor? And if we can find someone who is not our neighbor, that's really not them that's at fault. It's probably us. You know, that I, I believe that the whole purpose behind that story was for Jesus to say, they're all your neighbor. <laughs> right and, and or at least they all should be so um yeah. i don't yeah, know that's kind of my, my 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 parting thought i don't know if you have anything you want to add there especially because um <laughs> i dove into your faith <laughs> there yeah yeah no i i think that's great steve uh, well, it, it's just real simple that uh it's it's harder to hate someone that you actually know mm-hmm. um, and, and take the time to get to know Right. You know, we, we've we've talked about it before. There's been various wars and where the enemies have met and so on. And they find out, gee, they're not so bad after all. You know, yeah, it, uh, I, I think that just extending ourselves and I, I recognize there's been folks that have extended themselves and extended themselves and extended themselves and still been rejected. Um, but most most of us as a society, um, I, I don't know that we've extended ourselves as much as what we've needed to. And, uh, well, and I think, I, I think people like you and I, ahead, yeah. yeah, people like you and I, who, who, um, we come from the privileged background yeah. that part of this, we have to acknowledge. Now I have never owned slaves. <laughs> I get that. And I'm not sure if any of my ancestors owned slaves, but I benefited from that. You know, even just looking at, you know, um, our history and and um, I, I had a history teacher in college. It was my senior year. I took a, a class. It was for my senior paper, actually, called "Race and Ethnicity in the American West." And she pointed out when we were get, going into Black History Month that that the fact that we have a Black History Month shows tremendous oppression, because, as she pointed out to me, believe it or not, Black history and White history actually happened at the same time. <laughs> it, it was actually happening at the same time. And the fact that that our stories and our history books and our heroes have to come from those who have European descent or primarily come from that, you know, um, I didn't hear when they talked about, um, the, you know, Washington, D.C. and becoming the capital. I didn't hear that a that an army of slaves was was sent up to build the capital and to build the White House. I didn't know that the Statue of Freedom was was built by um, a slave, Philip Reed. <laughs> um, you know that that statue on the very top of the Capitol. Uh, apparently, when the final piece was put on, he was freed at that point. But that was because um, um, you know, the emancipation that was was given to slaves in D.C. during the war, uh, the Civil War. You know, I yeah. I didn't know that um, <laughs> most of New York was built by slaves who were sent. Um, uh, I mean, I always heard that, that with the North, that's where people were free, but it's not, it's, it wasn't true necessarily uh, that, that uh, New York was built by, by slaves that were sent up there and rented out. Um, and, and, and a slave could earn a wage, but only on a Sunday because all of those other six days um, had to be paid to their master. So like you look at Philip Reed, he made uh, a, a dollar a week um, because all the rest of his wages had to go to his master. There's so many things we didn't know, and this happened right along with our history. It wasn't 
their history happened over here and our history happened over there. And, and I feel like to some degree, if there's going to be healing, just like I talked about, you know, my, my experience growing up Mormon, if there's ever going to be true healing in that, in that um, organization uh, with, with people of color, it's going to require an acknowledgement of past wrongs. We can't fix them. We can't, we can't turn them around. We can, we can try our best to, in some ways, uh, create a better environment going forward. But, you know, the horrible, you, you can't undo a lynching. You can't undo uh, 400 years of slavery. Um, it doesn't mean that we don't try and, and put in programs that will, will mitigate the damage that comes out of those, but, but we can't undo those. At the very least, we must begin to acknowledge them. You know, and I think it even goes into, you know, whenever I see um, a rebel flag being waved, that individual waving it may not believe that they're waving a sign of slavery, but whether they believe it or not, that is what that that flag means. That's why it was flown. And so we need to also have some acknowledgement if we're going to heal. We have to be able to, to look back and not pat ourselves on the back or our ancestors on the back. We don't need to sit there and, and, and hate ourselves over it either. Yeah. But we need to, at the very least, begin that acknowledgement process. Yeah. Well, in AA, that is the first step. <laughs> yes. <laughs> acknowledgement that there's a problem. <laughs> I think they're on to something. So I think they're on to something. <laughs> and, and, and I think, you know, for me, even just acknowledging that I have parts of my neurology um, that were built to tell me falsehoods. You know, that, and I need to, I need to question myself. I need to say, is that reality? If I go into a store and I look around and I see people of color all around me and I feel nervous, I need to ask myself, is this a reality that I'm in danger or is this a bias that I'm in danger? And chances are the answer will be, it's a bias that I'm not in danger in that moment. If I see guns pointed at my head, then I'll change my mind. But right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, we, we've talked a lot, haven't we've covered, we? <laughs> we've covered a lot of ground. I don't know exactly where all we've gone, but we, we've shared our hearts anyhow. We and, have. Uh, we have. And, and again, I would like to remind and, and invite anyone who's listened to this and you've got a perspective. And especially if we've said something that is hurtful or offensive, um, certainly wasn't our intention and we would like to do better. So please feel free to to reach out to us and, and, um, and I can promise on both of our parts that we will, we will, we will listen to that critique, um, open-mindedly and open-heartedly. However, as we do come to an end uh, and, and being that this is, um, on Martin Luther King day, um, I would like to just, um, end with a quote, uh, of his, and this comes from, uh, I believe it's the last sermon he gave, uh, before yes. his assassination in, um, was it 1968? Yes. Um, so, yeah, this, um, he, he, this was his last speech that he gave at the Claiborne Ball Temple here in Memphis. That's right. You even know where this was, where this was given at. And, and of course, yeah. um, me you reading it. Throw, throw a baseball from the FedEx form and hit the church almost. <laughs> never come to Memphis. Yeah. And don't throw baseballs at a church. Just, just yeah, you no. know. <laughs> it, it's falling down as it is. So it doesn't need any help. But that's another story for him. <laughs> but, um, and, and of course, uh, I would, I would uh, say that if, if any of you, and most of you have probably heard this before, but if you haven't, I would invite you to go um, on the internet and listen to it because I'm not going to do justice nowhere near the orator that um, that King was. But um, this is his last his last paragraph in this sermon. He says, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. Yeah, and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. 
I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And of course, we know the very next day, um, he was assassinated out on a balcony. And, and <laughs> his story ends and, and begins um, at, at that point. At, yes. I don't know what the promised land looks like. I think I would like to see that too. <laughs> I would like to see his vision. I think there is a, I look at my children and um, they don't deal with the same racial tensions. You know, many of their, their friends are primarily interracial. Yes. I do see um, that we're moving in the right direction. And as long as our generation doesn't stop it, or doesn't kill it, I think the promised land is, you know, just beyond the horizon. What are your thoughts, Leonard? Absolutely. I, I, I think we have to maintain hope. That's for sure. And that's, that's, uh, I, I, you know, it's uh, so prophetic, of course, that he said what he did when he did. Um, but it, it really, I, I love where he says, um, I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go to the mountaintop and look over. Uh, so we, we have to have some faith, whether it's in God or whether it's in mankind, we have to have faith that we'll continue to move forward and continue to put petty racial tensions and things behind and, and step into those things that are uncomfortable. Um, but like you, uh, my children are much less susceptible than what you and I were during our time of growing, just as we were less susceptible than our own parents. And so it may not be as quick as some would like, but at least we're continuing to move that direction, I believe. And uh, I, I think we just, it might be right right, right or wrong to some folks, but in, in my view, I think we just have to rest in the fact of knowing that we're moving that way and continue to work towards it. I agree. And I think with that, we can probably go ahead and, and thank our sponsor, <laughs> Upwards yeah. Unlimited. Um, Leonard, do you want to tell everyone what Upwards Unlimited does? Yes, Upwards Unlimited, that's Upwards, W-O-R-D-S, words just like Martin Luther King, words matter, UpwardsUnlimited.com, and they specialize in helping you, your teams, and individuals have better conversations, connections, collaboration, and community, which I, I think is so appropriate for our conversation today. So with that, folks, uh, again, give us a shout by way of email if you would mailbox at gmail.com. Love to hear your thoughts, your own experiences as well. And look forward to talking to you again next week. Bye-bye, everyone. Black, 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 black.